All right, good morning, Two Cities Church. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here, whether you're watching online or in this room or in the VHQ venue or in the lobby. Welcome. You can look around if you're in this room, and it is full. We do have two other services, okay? We have a nine o'clock service, that's pretty full too. We have a five o'clock service, that's pretty full as well. But just to say, if you guys are in, this is the, if you're coming in for the first time, this is most likely the service you're going to come to. So if you call Two Cities Home, if you're a member, if you've been coming for a while, let me encourage you to consider coming to our 5 p.m. service. You don't have to come back tonight, just next time, okay? Uh, Come to our 5 o'clock service, come to our 9 a.m. service, and it's an exciting time. You know, we came to the city, and we came to the city with a city vision, okay? There was 30 of us, we moved here. We didn't come here simply to plant a church. We came here to reach, to love, to serve, to bless a city, and we have seen God do so much numerically, spiritually, organizationally, and I would just ask you to pray for us, okay? We've got 60 community groups meeting every week throughout our city. We're launching another five of those, um, and we're asking the question in 2021, and those of you who call Two Cities Home, um, pray with us. We're asking, Lord, do you have, we, we know this, we, we know we can't do 25 services in here forever, okay? We've got to figure out, Lord, do you have another place, a bigger space for us so we can increase our seating capacity, our serving capacity, our sending capacity, and we can continue to serve and love and bless the city. Uh, And and let me just tell you this, if if you're watching online or you're here and and you're like, how do I get connected? Let me just tell you real quick. Uh, We always want you to be able to get connected to the church as fast as you would like to get connected. So we have the weekender, okay? It's going to be January 22nd and 23rd. We're really, really excited about it. Last I checked, we had 85 people signed up. Uh, there's this, so we're closing it down today, okay? This is the last day to get connected, but, but whether you're online in the VHQ venue or in this room, if you want to come and you'd say, look, I, I want to connect my life, my family, my time, my talent, my treasure in strategic, meaningful, consistent ways, then we'd encourage you to consider doing that. With that said, let's, let's turn to or type to uh, Matthew chapter 5. If you're new, we're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever preached, <laughs> Jesus, okay? Jesus, uh, and by the way, Jesus is, if you're, if you're new, checking out Christianity, you're kind of a, hey, I'm a seeker, I'm a skeptic, I'm asking questions. Let me just tell you that, that Jesus Christ, he looms way too large in history for us not to deal with him. When you're worshiped by uh, roughly a billion people on earth, okay, and you, your birthday splits history, we should probably pay attention to who you are and what you said. We, we may disagree, we may want to debate, we may want to ask questions, okay, depending on where we are spiritually, but, but it's a great place to start is in the words and the teachings of Jesus. Now, as you turn to, we're going to be in Matthew 5, verse 13. We're going to only cover four verses, okay, but it's going to take a long time today, okay? Uh, we, we've got a lot to cover in these four verses. Last week, Jesus did the Beatitudes. I won't go back over that except to say the Beatitudes are spiritual states that the gospel creates, When you read the Beatitudes, like blessed are those who mourn and blessed are those who are pure in heart, don't be like, I gotta do these things. I have to do these things. This is what Christians do. That's that's moralism, okay? That's religion. Uh, Christianity says, I actually, what I need is a bigger view of Jesus Christ, what he did in his life, his death, his resurrection, that changes and transforms my heart so I mourn over my sin and I realize my spiritual poverty and I wanna be pure in heart. That's what happens and that's the Beatitudes. They are spiritual states that the gospel miraculously creates. They happen, okay, and you, you never outgrow them, okay? You, you keep walking through those. They, they, they are constant spiritual states. Well, today we're gonna be in verse 13. And Jesus in verse 13, he's gonna talk about Christians as being salt and light. And let me just say this too as we're gonna get into this because it's gonna be a very familiar passage. He's gonna talk about two concepts you see every day of your life, salt 
and light, right? I mean, some of you, you've got the pink Himalayan salt, okay, in your, in your house. You've got so many different, you have the sea salt, you have the kosher salt. I mean, you have salt everywhere, okay? Some of you, you have lights everywhere. You have, you have flashlight on your phone, you have lights in your house, you have dimmers, you've got lights everywhere. We go outside, there's a massive light in the sky called the sun. So we're used to these ideas of simple, simple ideas of light and of salt. Now, let me tell you this about Jesus, okay? Jesus was a very simple teacher. A lot of people go, I want the, give me the deep teaching. I don't want simple stuff. Well, actually, simple can be deep. We're not saying shallow. We're not saying surface level. We're not saying simplistic. We're saying simple can be deep because here's what deep means. Because sometimes people think, sometimes teachers get up here, pastors get up here, seminary professors get up here, and they go, all right, it's going to be deep if you don't understand it. If, if, it's, if it sounds complex and convoluted and, you know, and complicated, then it's deep. No, it's not. Uh, John Calvin, famous Christian, he said, I study so hard to be simple. William Tyndale, the first man to translate the Bible into English, he said, I want to translate the Bible so the 14-year-old plowboy can read it. Do you know that the average Bible to this day is still translated at a sixth grade reading level? Because that, out of the Koine Greek, that's how the Bible's meant to be read. It's simple. Now, simple means, here's, here's what deep is, because people go, what's deep? What does it mean that something's deep? Because you'll feel something. Every once in a while, you'll go, that was deep. What, what do you mean when you say that? Here's what deep means. It's touching multiple parts of my life. That's what deep means. You're like, you're like, it affects my marriage, it affects my family, it affects my finances, it affects how I'm thinking when I go home tonight. That was deep. That's what you're saying. You're going, it's touching me at multiple levels. And so what Jesus is going to do, he's going to take really simple concepts, salt, light, and they're going to be very, very deep. They're going to touch you at multiple levels. And what he's doing this week is he's moving from character to influence. So if you, if you want to write, if you, if you take notes or you're a note taker in your Bible, and I'd encourage you to do that. I knew one guy, he, he wrote in his Bible every year and then gave it to one of his kids. And then rewrote in his Bible every year and then gave it to a grandkid. And just said, I want to fill the, I want to fill the word of God with my thoughts. I want to write them all down. I want to give, give it away to, to people I love. If you do that, in verses 1 through 12, you might want to write the Christian character. It's the character of a Christian. And we know how important character is, right? Character is, it's integrity, right? What does integrity mean? Integrated. Same person, right? If you have good Christian character, there's not like work you and weekend you, which is you know, different than work you, which is different than no one's home you, which is different than you're with your family you, which is different than you're at church you. I mean, that's not, a, that's not an integrated life. An integrated life is uh, my private and my public life are, are, are the same. So with all that said, today we move from character to influence, and I'm really excited about this. Again, it's going to be four verses, but here's what we're doing. With influence, this is what, this is what you want to learn. In, in the Beatitudes, you learn a very important lesson. It's the first lesson every Christian has to learn. God wants to have a relationship with me through Christ. Every, I learned that lesson. It took me 16 years. I learned that lesson when I was 16 years old. I remember being over, I'm, I haven't got over it. That through Jesus Christ, I can have a relationship with God. My sins can be forgiven. The Holy Spirit can come live in me, and I can walk with God. I never got over that. Every Christian realizes that moment. The second moment is as important, but people, most Christians don't ever realize it. Here's the second moment. God wants to use me in the life of other people. That whatever God wants to do through his church, he wants to do it through all of his church, right? There's no JV Christians. There's not JV and varsity Christians. And so today, Jesus is going to say, you are salt and you are light. And let me just tell you what this is. This is the call to influence. I want you to pay very close attention today because this is your opportunity some of you go, my life doesn't feel significant. My life doesn't feel meaningful. If you would realize that God has called you wherever you are to be salt and light, you won't have to look around and go, what's the meaning of my life? It's actually the call to an adventure. It's, call, it's the call to significance. And it's all right in this passage. It's four verses. We're gonna spend the rest of our time looking at it today. Read with me verses 13 through 16 of Matthew 5. Here, here are the words of Jesus Christ. 
You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that, you, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here's what he's saying. I want us to pay attention to this, a couple things. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna look, look at it all together and then we're gonna look at salt and look at light individually. First, notice that he says you are these things. You don't get to choose. It's not like, we took a vote and we're gonna be salt. That's it, we decided. It was optional. He said, do you wanna be it or do you not wanna be it? And the early disciples, they got together, it was a seven, five vote, they decided to be salt, right? That's not what happens. It's the same thing where the Bible says the husband is the head of the home. And sometimes people are like, I don't know if I like that. It's like, okay. It's, it does, it's, right? Well, we're gonna vote on it. You can vote on it, he's still the head. He's either a good head or a bad head, but we're the head. You're either good salt or you're bad salt, right? And what's interesting is in the Greek, it's emphatic. You and you only are the salt. You and you only are the, are, are the light. It's this unique picture. Now, a couple things here. First of all, it shows us again the difference and distinction between us and the world. Now, listen, you're not salt because you're so great. And I'm not salt because I'm so great. You're not light. It doesn't say the light of your shining personality, it does, right? it's, not, it's not the saltiness of your academic prowess or your intellectual insights, you know, or your moral purity. That's not what the light is. What we're gonna see is, right, who else calls himself the light of the world? Jesus Christ. Oh, it's his light through us, right? There's two types of light, right? There's the light of the sun, which has its own power source, and the light of the moon, which reflects that of the sun. We're like the moon. We just reflect the light. So it's a very humbling thing because cause, cause here's, what, here's what happens. When you read this honestly, you go, well, if we're, if we're salt, and we'll get into this in a few minutes. That means the world is that which needs to be preserved and needs flavor. That's what it's saying. So it's not a really great picture of the world. And if you say, well, if we're light, then here's what that means for the world. It means that the world's in darkness, and that's not a really great picture of the world either. But it should never lead, lead us as Christians to go, well, aren't we so awesome? I'm so glad that I found Jesus, I, that, that I am more spiritually astute than other people, that I'm smarter that I'm more sensitive to the spirits. Like when you realize that the only reason we are salt and light is because we are connected to Christ, that begins to transform and change you. Notice that he wants us to be different. He wants us to be distinct. Well, here's, what we, here's what we're saying. We need to embrace the idea that we're gonna be a salty and bright community, which means we're gonna be, I'll say it a couple different ways. We're gonna be a city within a city. We said that. We're going to be a counterculture. We're gonna be an attractive alternative. We're going to be different and distinct. And listen, it's our differences and our distinctions that if we would just actually live it out and we'll talk about how we try to lose our saltiness and hide our light. But, but if we would actually live it out, it would act, the Bible says it's our differences and our distinctions that draw people to us. And we just have to admit, like, Christianity is gonna be strange to people. We believe in a real heaven and hell that real people go to forever. Not popular to believe that. We believe that, you know, your biggest problem is God's problem with you. Not very popular. You know, we believe that you are a sinner justly condemned before God, having only hope in Christ. We believe that God became a man, really became a baby, lived a perfect life, died in some way that what happened 2,000 years ago counts for us when we trust in him, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is coming back on a white horse. A little strange. 
I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's not, if it's not strange, then you've probably been in an echo chamber just talking to other Christians in a holy huddle. But if you begin to, but it's actually the same if you've seen the power of that go out in people's lives. If you've ever seen the, if you've ever seen the gospel kind of lights go on in another person and they get it and they start asking questions. Secondly, notice not just, the, we're, we're from the, the beginning called to, con, called to be a contrast community. <clears throat> notice also, it's a global vision. Do you see it? It's very subtle there, but he says you are the, he doesn't say, it doesn't say you are the salt of Jerusalem and Judea. Or you are the salt of your, just your neighborhood. Or you are the light of Samaria. It, it says you are either, the, it says you are the light of the world. It says you are the salt of the entire earth. I want you to understand this. You may have known this already. But from the very beginning, Christianity and Jesus Christ himself has always had a global vision. God is way too glorious to be worshiped by one skin color, in one language, or by one people, uh, by one place on earth. John Stott, a Christian pastor who died about 10 years ago, John Stott said when he was a young man, he went to a small church in a small village in England. And he said, I went to that small church and I sat down and I listened and I was a brand new Christian. And as, a, as, a, as the pastor and the people were talking, they, they talked all about their small church in their small village. He said, when I left, I thought they worshiped a very small God of a tribal village in a very small town. May that never be here. We don't just, it's not just the God of Winston-Salem or the God of two city churches, the God of the entire world. This is why we, this is why we gave to hold the rope. This is why we, we send people to India. This is why we plant churches all over the nation. So with that said, I want us to look at each of these uh, individually. Look with me first at verse 13. He says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Let's talk about salt. So it's hard for us to appreciate salt. Let me tell you a couple of interesting things about salt. Salt is the only rock you eat, okay? <laughs> At least only rock you should eat. If you're eating other rocks, <laughs> we have a prayer team afterwards here. Um, but it's the, only, it's the only rock you should eat, okay? Um, and, and for us, it's interesting. There's a, there's a book that was written called uh, Salt, A History of the World. It's a New York Times bestseller. And uh, hundreds of pages long about the role that salt has played in the building of civilization, which is really an interesting thought. I had never had this thought before, but you know what salt does is because we'll get to this, but salt was it was really important before there was refrigeration. So think about this for a moment. What salt does is it allows you to store meat. And if you can before refrigeration, if you can store meat, what can you do as soon as you figure out how to store meat and keep meat for a while? You can trade meat. As long as guess what happens when you learn how to trade? You become very popular. Uh, you, and guess if you have lots of salt, know how to keep it for a long time, and know how to give it to others as well, you become the center of civilization. Now, we don't value salt anymore. Like when we say he's worth his salt, that, that was an economic term. Do you know that the Latin word salary comes from the Latin word salt? Salt used to be incredibly expensive. Okay, now it's the only thing I can afford at Whole Foods, okay? <laughs> It's still kind of expensive there. But, 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 but I mean, salt is, right. salt is so cheap today. But I want, I want to tell you a couple things about it that, that it's interesting because, because again, this is why I said this is deep, right? Deep is, it's simple but deep. It touches at multiple levels. So, so here's, here's, here's what it is. The first thing that we learned when Jesus says salt is that it looks small and insignificant, but it's very valuable. Like if you just look at salt, it looks small and insignificant, but it's, very, it's valuable to God, right? Because he sent Christ to die for the church. So Christ loves the church. And it's interesting, you know, I, I, Jeremy Woods, who we, who we talk about often, uh, he's, he's one of our church planners who's heading to Myrtle Beach. He texted me, that, uh, I think it was yesterday. He was, uh, you know, he just was encouraged. He said, we had a family of five join our launch team. 
Now, I remember when you're planning a church, that's like a 33% increase in attendance, okay? <laughs> when you go from 10 to 15, you're like, yes! Um, and if you get a homeschool family, it increases by 50%. <laughs> it's just, it's just, so it's just, it's really, it's really, really exciting. And so we're, we're, we're kind of talking through it. And, and, and I, I'm thinking to myself, okay, now he, I don't know exactly how many people are in Myrtle Beach, but, but it's just like a little bit of salt going into Myrtle Beach, right? It doesn't look like much at first. That's how the church always goes. It's like, well, here's five people and here's 10 people and here's 30 people who started a church and here's a couple Christians starting a school and it seems small and it's insignificant, but it's valuable. The other thing is that the church historically, globally, biblically, actually is valuable to society. Normally, now our society is becoming more hostile to the church, but normally when a church went into a neighborhood or a church went into a city, people were excited. It's like, well, that'll be good for families. That'll be good for counseling. Uh, that'll be a good part of the moral and social and economic fiber of our city. Oh, they'll probably serve our communities and help the homeless and help the poor. Oh, that, that'll be really good for our society. So the first thing we're told is, hey, it's, it's, we, it looks insignificant. It looks as if it's small, and it is at one level, but it's valuable to God. The second, and the, and the main thing is it preserves, okay? Now, before refrigeration, and it's hard for us to imagine a day before refrigeration, right? All of us have at least one refrigerator in our house, okay? Some of you, you know, you've got a refrigerator in the basement, you've got a deep freezer. I mean, you can get stuff from Costco, throw it in the deep freezer, and find it like four years from now, you know? <laughs> Wash off the frozen part of it and recook it and not tell anyone. You're like, this expired in May of 2015. It's probably fine, you know? Um, <laughs> Well, that's kind of, we have that luxury of just, we buy a bunch of food, we can freeze it forever. Now, back then, they didn't have that. And so what, what it's saying is that what happens in society, and you know this, is this, the, the, the movement of society is toward death, toward decay, toward destruction. You know this in your own life, right? Like, you know, you don't have to work on your good habits. They, or sorry, you have to work on your good habits. Your bad habits, they, they happen naturally. And so God puts the church, and I actually want to talk about this, this is important. So this is, this is the idea of preservation. So how does the church how do you preserve? How are you salt and you preserve? Let me give you a couple applications. Number one, stop making things worse. Some of you at your home, that's all you do. That's what you do. You get home and you make things worse. Some of you, it's like, oh no, Jim's at work. Because what Jim does is Jim comes in and he makes things worse. Right? You know people. If you're not this person, you know people like this in your family, right? It's Thanksgiving. It's Christmas. Oh, aunt so-and-so is here. What does she do? She makes things worse. Everybody has that person at work that makes things worse. It's like you would be amazed at how much you could do if you would just tell yourself, stop making things worse everywhere I go. Stop being bitter, stop being resentful, stop being revengeful, stop envying, stop comparing. It's like, well, that would, that would solve about 50% of your problems. If you would go in environments and go, I'm not going to make this worse. Because I wanna, I, that's, that's not what Christians do, that's not what salt does, we preserve and then understand the structure that God put in, in existence for, for things to be preserved. So there's four levels that God put in place. And this is important to know. We, part of what we're building here every Sunday is a Christian worldview for, you, for us all to have together. So God put in four guardrails for us to preserve ourselves and our society. The first is your conscience. So everybody has a conscience. And what your conscience normally does is it doesn't tell you what to do. Your conscience will tell you what not to do. So you'll try to, you know, it, it, we wish our conscience would just tell us everything, but our conscience doesn't tell us what to do. Some people say, about half people say their conscience is a feeling. The others say it sounds more like a voice, but everybody kind of has that idea of a conscience. Now, the, what we know this about our conscience. See, what's happened in our society is everybody said, well, why don't you do whatever you want to do with what, whoever you want to do it, whenever you want to do it. And just let's break social norms. Let's just do whatever feels good. And so we end up, we end up this is the problem with our conscience is we can tell our conscience no. And, and, and the, you know, the hardest time to tell your conscience no is the first time, right? The first time you lie to your spouse, right? 
the first time you look at something you shouldn't have looked at, whatever it is. They, they, you tell your conscience no. Now, this is very interesting. They find in most alcoholics and addicts, they're also pathological liars. And you just think about it for a second. It makes a lot of sense. And they've actually shown on brain scans, the portion of, the, of your brain that, that controls, I guess, lying is, is, is inflamed among most addicts and alcoholics. Why? Because you've had to lie to yourself for a long time. And then usually other people. And then usually lots of people. And then usually multiple stories to cover up multiple lies of where you've been and what you've been doing. So what happens, unfortunately, is a lot of people can break through the first, the first thing God gave us, which is conscience. Do you know what the second thing that God gave us is? Family. So, you know, it, you can see, you're going to start seeing why this is all broken down in our society, right? Because if you're told, well, don't listen to your conscience. Instead, just do whatever feels good. All of a sudden, you're telling your conscience no. And by the time you're in middle school or high school or college or, I don't know, you're some young professional living in some big city, you've told your conscience no so many times. You, I mean, it's scary. Sometimes it's hard to read. You have to re, by the way, you, if your conscience is all messed up, you reinform your conscience by scripture. That's what you do. You recalibrate it. It takes time. Um, but then there's the family, and the family's broken down, right? But what the family was there is, hey, well, we're going to love you. We're going to pray for you. We're going to discipline you. Uh, when you break your conscience, and you know it, mom and dad are going to talk to you lovingly. You, there may be punishment. There may be reward for good behavior. We're going you know, to help you because that's what the family does. We're the second line of defense, and we're going to inform and help the conscience. Well, when, the fa- when there's fatherless and the family falls apart and mom and dad are more concerned with their career than their kids, well, you, get, you see what happens. And so, so then you've got the third, third defense is the government. And without getting into a long thing on the government, the government exists primarily, according to Scripture, for two purposes, order and law. Order is like, you know, well, you know, we pay taxes. It's, it's nice to have highways. I mean, it's nice to have airports. We're glad the lights are on. We're glad the plumbing works. I mean, that we need to flourish, and so there needs to be, somebody needs to keep the order. That's a good job for the government to have. And then law, and, and law is simple. We, we punish that which is evil, and we reward that which is good. <clears throat> we don't want too many laws, but that would be a good basic structure for society. But what happens when the government doesn't punish what's evil anymore and rewards what's evil instead and, and begins to say something different than what is true and what is, what is re- re- uh, revealed in the scriptures in regards to mor- morality? Well, then you are left with the final line uh, the final guardrail, the final thing that preserves, which is the church, this room, every true church of Jesus Christ. And it's because we hold to something outside of ourselves, right? Not to cultural opinion, not to what, is, what are celebrities saying, not to what feels good. We, we hold on to the fixed, inerrant, unchangeable, objective revelation of God. And so what he's saying is we are the last, we are the preserving agent of society. We're committed to the human flourishing of society. Then there's the, the final thing that salt does. The salt adds flavor, right? Now, not by itself, right? Like I once knew somebody and uh, she liked to take that, the, the can of spray, I cannot believe it's not butter. She used to like to spray that in her mouth just by itself. Now, butter by itself, I guess, in some of you, don't act like you've never put a piece of butter in your mouth by yourself. Some of you have done this. <laughs> Okay, but um, I knew another guy, he was, he was on a fast. This was for about a week. He called me, he was from New Orleans. He said, I'm fasting. Is it okay if I take shots of Tabasco sauce? He's like, I just miss it. It's like, I, I, okay, you know, it's, it's a little strange, but that's fine. Um, but, but it's like, okay, so, so I knew a guy that, I knew someone who took butter by itself. I knew, I knew somebody who, who took hot sauce by itself. I, I, I've never met anyone who just eats salt by itself, right? I mean, because salt in and of itself is, Right? This, kind of, this is why this is such a deep illustration because by itself, it's kind of gross. Just the, right? This is why we're not sugar, right? Sugar is great by itself. 
<laughs> right? I mean, when I was a teenager in middle school, we used to play the game. You ever play the game where you cut all the, the sugar packets and they've all got sugar in them and you dump one out and you put salt in it? And then you pass it out to all your friends and you all look to see which one's gonna get the salt packet? Okay, none of you did this? Okay, <laughs> I'm from public high school. Okay, um, okay, so that's what we did. And it was funny because sugar's fine and everybody, you know, but you could always tell by the face of the guy you know, who had the salt packet. And it's because salt in and of itself, it, it's meant to be put on other things. It's meant to be mixed in with other things to get flavor. Now, this is an interesting idea because again, primarily he's talking about that we preserve, but second, we, we give flavor, we give life to things. Now, this is the exact opposite of how Christians are, are sadly known today. We're known as boring, right? Like, we're just, we're just so boring. It's like, I, you know, and I'm not, but I, I think that, no, I am boring, but, I, but, I'm, but, I'm, but, I'm, but I'm, I, I'm, uh, I'm not this, what I'm about to say here, but, but one of the thoughts I had this week was, I should be, not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a Christian, I should be the most interesting person that my neighbors meet. I, I should be fascinating to them. If I, I mean, that's a good way to think about your life. Like, you should be so interesting and so fascinating to people who don't know Christ. It's like, well, how? It's like, well, I don't know because I don't know your circumstances and I don't know your family and I don't know your opportunities and I don't know your career, you know? But, but like, you should be, do, how about the relationships that you have, right? You don't just have relationships that you would have if you were just a normal person, just with no love for Christ. You're constantly finding ways to practice hospitality. You're, you're constantly spending time with people who are far from God and close to you. You're, you're, you look, your finances look completely different. You live at a lower level than everybody else who makes the same amount of money as you. Because you, how could you otherwise? I mean, you, if you're gonna be committed to, to genuine saving and genuine giving and, and, and whatever looks, whatever you gotta wrestle with yourself, whatever looks like simplicity to you and good enough to you. And, and then the second thing is, you know what I think this means is we, we've gotta learn how to enjoy life and invite others into it. One, one pastor, he said, Christians are terrible at partying. And not, not, the, not the sinful, foolish, you know, get drunk, break commandments, wake up with a hangover partying. Um, but the, the partying that says, how do I enjoy God's creation and engage people? How do I learn how to create environments? You, do you know this? The Apostle Paul, and he's our great model for Christian ministry in many ways. He would go into a city and he would do two things. He would go into a city and he would first, he'd go to the synagogue, think church. And Christians are good at that. We're like, oh, we understand that. We go to the church and we talk to other people. And, and he would go to, to the synagogue and he would share Christ and he would, he would talk in ways to the religiously lost. And then if you read this, next time you read, read, read uh, Acts, the, the second most common place he'd go every time was the marketplace. What's the marketplace? It's where everybody hung out. I saw that this, the, the late spring, early summer, Winston-Salem's supposed to get its first food hall in downtown. Now, I'm not 100% sure what a food hall is, okay? But, you, but, but what it is, it's, a, it's something like a, it's, a thir, it's what's called a third space, right? First space is where you live. Second space is where you work. Third space is where you play. And most Christians don't know how to hang out in third spaces. They, they don't know how to inv, engage. In, this is gonna have a bowling alley. It's gonna have restaurants. It's gonna have tables. It's gonna have dessert places. It's, gonna, it's going to be a gathering place. It's gonna be a great place to meet people. It's gonna be a great place to, have a, you know, go out for a meal with your community group. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be an interesting type of place, but we, we need to learn more. What does it look like to engage? Now he has a warning. Do you see it? Look at verse 13. He says, if the salt has lost its saltiness. Now, you, now here's what's interesting. Salt can't lose its saltiness. There's salt that's been around for thousands of years on this earth that's, that's still salty. There's only one way that salt loses, quote unquote, its saltiness. It has to be diluted with a bunch of other things. 
See how deep this idea is? It's such a deep idea. It's like, well, you could, t- you could take a cup of, you think about a cup of salt. It's like, well, you know, a cup of salt in an eight ounce, you know, jar of water would be really salty. But if you put it in 30 gallons of water, you probably wouldn't even know there's salt in it. And so this is what's so interesting is that often he's warned, he said, you can lose your saltiness. Now, how do you lose your saltiness? By being disconnected from Christ. But this is why everything's so practical. It's like, why do we pray? Why do we practice solitude? Why do we practice personal repentance? Why do we memorize scripture? Why do we gather together in community? These are all disciplines that help us remain salty. You can, be, uh, uh, you can lose your saltiness by not being connected to Christian community. I heard a guy this last week, he was saying that whenever somebody comes to him, I've been thinking a lot about world missions, he said, whenever someone comes to him and says, I think I'm called to world missions. I think I, you know, I want to give my life to this. And, and they normally say, what do I need to do? Do I need to go to seminary? Are there certain books I need to read? He said, he said my answer always surprises them. I always tell them the same thing. I'd like you to be a great member of this church for several years first. I mean, if you're, if you're, are you going to learn how to disciple? Are you going to learn how to be in community? Are you going to learn how to pray? Are you going to learn how to practice hospitality? Are you going to evangelistically enfold people into the life of the church? The, the best way for you to learn how to be salty is to be connected to a community for a long time. And then, honestly, how can we be salty if we're not out in the world, right? Because the way that you would preserve meat is you would have to, there's a whole process to it. You would have to take lots of salt and you would have to rub it in deeply into the meat so that it would be stored. So Jesus has a warning. He says, what happens if you lose your saltiness? He says, you're useless. Literally, the Greek is the word moron. It, 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 I mean, not to be, the, the technical idea is, is a, you are somebody who does not function rightly. And he says, there's one, there's one thing that happens. He says, you're thrown out in the street, which that doesn't sound too bad because we read street, we go, oh, great. So then they use it for like getting the ice off the path. No, that's not what it means. <laughs> that, that was the trash can of the day. You're thrown in the trash and then it says your, other people's feet trample over you. It's like, well, what, why, would he, why would he add that? Most commentators believe what this is saying is this is the opposite of persecution, but this is when you are so useless, so irrelevant, and so ineffective. It's the, it's the judgment of the world on the ineffective Christian. I, I can remember when I became a Christian, I went to several, I mean, this was, I probably wouldn't have done this if I was a little more spiritual, I'm sure. I, and I came to faith in Christ. I remember going to several Christians I knew in my high school and I said, I, they were all excited I came to Christ. I said, why didn't you ever share with me? Well, I, I mean, I, 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 yeah, right? That's what we'd all do. It's like, well, if you're gonna be ineffective, if you're not gonna be salty, if you're not gonna be bright, well, then you're just a bad example to the church and a bad example to the world. And, I mean, Jesus has some, I mean, this is not, you know, little baby Jesus, all, you know, give him a hug and a kiss. I mean, this is, this is some tough words from Jesus. And then he goes on, he gives you another one. He gives light. Okay, let's look at light. In light, he says this, Verse, this is verse 14 through 16. He says this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So Jesus gives us two different kind of metaphors, okay? One is kind of, salt is secret and it's subtle, okay? And it's small, Light is the exact opposite. Light is a reminder, light is public. Light is a reminder that our faith can always, can, can certainly be personal. It has to be personal, but that our faith is never private. It's always supposed to be public. Now, again, when we talk about light, like think about light with me just for a few minutes. 
We lived in complete darkness as a society until 1879. That's when electricity came out publicly. I mean, that's, that's 140 years ago. If you think about it, that's two old men. That's it. That's two old people ago is when electricity came out. And until that point, it's like, you know, you read these, I used to read these Christian biographies and stuff, and I'd be like, oh, he got up at four o'clock in the morning and prayed. Oh, I'll never do that. Then I realized he went to bed at 7.30 at night <laughs> because that's what you did. It's like, you just went to bed when the sun went, you were completely determined by, so what are you gonna do? Read a book that was very expensive by candlelight? And not, probably not. You know, most people went to bed when the sun went down. Most people got up when the sun came up. Well, it's hard for us to understand how much darkness was around because we have light everywhere. Now, what does darkness represent? It represents two things in scripture. The first is it represents ignorance. So you'll see it, it'll say, scripture will talk about it. There's a people in great darkness. A light has shone upon those in great darkness. What does that mean? It means that the idea of ignorance, it means that people don't know, right? We live in a culture where people are confused. I say this all the time, but people are confused about the most basic things in life now. We live in this modern, scientific, technological society and people are as irrational and illogical as ever. Because when you stop believing in something, you start believing in everything. And so what happens is the Bible says, actually, this is interesting, that our greatest problem, this is Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous pastor, made this observation. He said, man's greatest problem is not that he's a sinner. And you go, well, that sounds like a big problem. He said, well, man's biggest problem is not that he's going to hell. You're like, well, I, it is. You know, that's, that's a big problem. And, it, and he says, actually, no, man's greatest problem is he doesn't know those things. And that's why preaching exists. That's why evangelism exists. That's why discipleship exists. It exists because we don't know these things. People don't know these things. So the first thing is, is that darkness means ignorance. And this is why truth, the number one synonym for truth in the Bible, or sorry, the number one synonym for light in the Bible is truth. The second thing that light, light means, or, or darkness means is evil, right? So it's evil deeds. So the, the, it says in John 3, it says, Jesus came into the world. The light, he came into the world as the light. It says, but the people loved the darkness. People like to act like the main reason I don't come to faith in Christ is because I've got questions about evolution. It's like, probably not. That's probably not the reason that most people don't come to Christ. And that's probably a facade because it sounds intellectual and it sounds, it's like most people don't want to change their life. Most people want to engage in sinful activities and not be responsible for them. Most people want to live for simple, easy, cheap pleasure. It reminded me that, that you know, back in my BC days, before Christ days, I went to a middle school dance, okay? I was a middle schooler back then, and I went to a middle school dance in public high school. And I'll tell you, it was, it, you know, I used to love these dances. I remember this. And, uh, and they, they, they would be two hours, two and a half hours long. They'd play all this music, and all the we'd be in the gymnasium. All the lights would be out. And, uh, and they would say, hey, we're going to play the last song. And they'd play like a really slow song, and you'd dance with your girlfriend or whatever. And, uh, and, and they, you'd dance for a little bit. And then I remember they'd say, all right, guys, it's time. And no one would really listen and everyone would hang out. And guys, it's time. It's, you know, we're about to close down. And after no one would listen, they would hit all the lights. And I remember looking around every time going, gross. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You just look around, you're like, everybody's sweating. Like, <laughs> and, and, and there's stuff all over the ground. And I mean, not to be inappropriate, but people are all over each other. And, uh, and you're like, all that was happening a moment ago but it was all in the dark. And, you know, and, and, and by the way, this is actually a good lesson. Sometimes it's overwhelming to see everything in the light at once. Some, you know, I mean, and this is, sometimes you're just like, some of you are like a blowtorch with your, your family or with your, your friends. You know, it's like, Phew, too much light. Like 15 bulbs, LEDs in your face at once. Everyone's like, it's too much, it's too much. I've been living in darkness forever. You've got you to like do a dimmer switch and be like, hey, can I ask you a question? 
You know, what's your spiritual background? A little dimmer switch. Oh, I never, I've not talked about my spiritual life in 20 years. You know, hey, would you, would you consider, you know, I'd love it if we, I won't even prepare. I'd love it if we just could get together once a week and read a chapter of the Gospel of Mark. In fact, you lead it if you want to. A little dimmer switch. And so we've got to figure out how to do this thing. So he says, he says okay, you're, and then he gives two examples. He goes, you're a city on a hill, which I didn't know this, but even a city on a small hill with basic lighting back then, which would have been lanterns and lamps, um, they said that it could go for dozens, if sometimes hundreds of miles, you could see that light. It would reflect off the clouds. The, the idea there, the city on a hill, is, is that's the picture of the church. You know, it's like, well, why did we have to come back in person so quickly? And I don't even think it was that quickly, but we tried to as quickly as we could. I think it was 11 weeks or something like that that we had, or 15 weeks that we had no services uh, in, in person. It's like, because so much of what happens in this room is a picture of light coming together. We're all gonna sing the same songs. We're gonna sit under the word together. We're gonna pray together. We're gonna confess our sins together. Now, he, he warns here, he says, he, says there's, he says, there's a city on a hill. He says, and then notice it's on a hill. Uh, we wanna, you wanna make it as bright as possible. And then look at what he says. He says, there's a, a lamp, and he says, you don't put it under a basket, you put it on a lampstand. He talks about, he says, there's, there's two places you should be light, at church and in home. Now, where's it easier to be light? Here, right? I mean, then at your home, right? I mean, home you is real you, and real you is, well, it's you. I mean, and, and, it's, and it's hard. And, you know, and this is particularly, I want to call it the men, to be, to be bright and salty in your homes. I've heard it said that the leadership of a husband is seen on the flourishing faces of his wife and children. And the easiest place it is, it says, it says what happens is, is we tend to put a basket over our light. Do you notice that? He says, don't put a basket over it. What are the, what's the basket you put over yours, right? Some of you, it's the basket of your iPad, right? We can't even, your iPad and your phone, you can't be bright at all, right? You're staring at light the whole time yourself, the light of your iPad. Some of you, it's, your basket is you are so afraid. You're, so, you're, you're afraid of your boss. You're afraid of your coworkers. You're afraid of your neighbors. You're afraid what would they, the only person who knows you're a Christian is Jesus, Okay. <laughs> You're, you haven't told anybody ever. It's the last thing everybody ever finds out about you. So you're afraid. Some of you, you're just so distracted. You're so busy. Athletics, academics, activities. There's no room in your schedule or your budget for you to be salty or bright. And so Jesus says, I don't want you to hide it. And in fact, he, says, he goes one step further. He goes, I want you to have the right motives for it. Look here, look at verse 16. He says this. In the same way, and this is so emphasized in the Greek, it's hard to, hard to emphasize it here. Let your light shine before others. So put it on a hill, put it on a stand, get rid of anything in your life that's covering it. And for some of you, I think it's unconfessed sin because you can't be a light if you won't come into the light. If you won't be honest about some things, and we'll get to this at the end, but it's because of what Christ has done that lets us come into light, which then lets us be light. So he says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that, here's the reason, God has a purpose for this, so that they may see your good works. I can't see your faith. I, I can look at you right now, I, can look, I can't see it. I can't see the, I wish I could see the gospel. I wish I could look at you and go, I just naturally see that Christ died for sinners. I, I, it's impossible. The only way that I can see your faith or you can see my faith is if it goes public in good works and good words. And so he says this, he goes, okay, look, uh, let, your shine, uh, let your light shine before others so that they would see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He even tells you, here's the motivation for what you should do. And this is what makes Christians different, right? 
Christian and non-Christian can do the exact same thing for two completely different motivations. We're told here that our motivation should be the glory of God. Do you see that? So that other people would glorify God. What are the, two, the number one and number two heart motivations of every human? Either guilt or greed. I mean, how many people, we just do things out of guilt, right? Have you ever, have, has a neighbor of yours or a family member of yours uh, or, or a coworker of yours ever given you something and you thought, oh no, I gotta get him something now, <laughs> right? And you're looking it up on Amazon to see how much it costs. You're like, okay, okay, $25, good, I can do that. Um, you know, it, right, we, we, tend to, we tend to do things basically out of guilt. I mean, you'd be amazed at how many people, they just feel guilty. They feel guilty for all that they have. They feel, guilt, they feel guilty for things they've done in the past. So they need to make up for it. They feel guilty that someone's watching them and they're not doing enough. The guilt is a massive motivation for people. The other is greed, right? Greed is I want you to see me and I want you to like me and I want you to think I'm great and I'll do something for you because I know that humans track very well re reciprocity. Uh, and so, so I know that if I do something good for you, the chance that you'll do something good for me really drastically increases. So that's why I do something. And he's saying, the, the, the ultimate motivation can't be greed, it can't be guilt, it has to be gratitude, gospel, and the glory of God. Now, what is the glory of God? Because we talk, I mean, you know, it, people, try this, those of you who've been in church for a while, try not to say things that you don't understand what you're saying. Don't try to use Christianese. Don't say things like, I just want to glorify God, unless you know what that means. Like, you know, I just want to glorify God on the baseball field. What does that mean? It's all to the glory of God. What? You know, it doesn't make sense. It does make sense if you understand what it means. But so the glory of God is the greatness and the goodness of God gone public. So the, anytime the glory of God is used in the Bible, it's when a characteristic about God is made visible to, for people to see. It could be any characteristic. It could be his wrath. It could be his love. It could be whatever. So what it means to glorify God is it means I want to make God look great with my life. So if you ever say, it's okay to say it, I want to glorify God at work. What you're actually saying is I would like to make God look great at my work. Now you would have to answer the question, which is a very hard question that each, I can't answer for you and I can't answer for you or for you. Life's too complex, your job's too complex, you're too complex, you'll have to answer it for you. But how do you glorify God at work so people can see your good deeds? Like people talk all the time about glorifying God uh, you know, in sports. You know, and it's like, what does that mean? Does that mean when you catch the football, you point up in the air like this? Probably not, right? I mean, that's kind of, I mean, it's kind of silly, unless, unless it's just the tip of the iceberg of everything else you're doing. So like when Tim Tebow does it, I'm like, cool, he means it, right? When he did it, because you're like, well, he's also the guy who led like 20 of his teammates to Christ over the four years he was there. And he's also the guy who, who instead of going out and partying with everyone, meets three disabled kids after the game. And, and you're just like, and you just look at it and you go, you're, that's so salty. I don't even know, I mean, what's so... What, you have so much money. You're good looking. You're an athlete. You're famous. This is not what good looking, famous, rich, young people do. Oh, but Christ has totally changed your heart. And, and that's just one domain. Now he's in different domains and he glorifies God in different ways. The question is just wrestling. It's not easy. It's wrestling through how do I glorify God as a doctor? How do I glorify God as a mom? And it takes, it takes the, this is what, you have a mind so that you have the ability for reflection and affection. That's why you have a mind. So I wanna, I wanna be able to think about these things and wanna make, make a difference. What needs to ultimately motivate us is the gospel. It's interesting, Jesus Christ is called the light of the world. We are just a light of the world. We, as I said, we are the moon that reflects the sun of Jesus Christ. Do you know the only time you cannot see the light of the moon? 
This is an interesting observation. The only time you don't get to see the light of the moon is during an eclipse. Do you know what happens during an eclipse? The world gets between the sun and the moon. Wow. When, what happens when we stop shining our light? It's because the world has gotten between us and Christ. What a powerful picture. What a powerful image. Jesus Christ said, I am the light of the world, but I'm going to, what does he do at the cross? He steps down into darkness. Why was there darkness for three hours on the cross? Because darkness doesn't just represent ignorance. Darkness also represents, and doesn't just represent evil deeds. There's a third meaning in the Bible of darkness. It represents judgment. What Jesus Christ does as the light of the world is he experiences the judgment of God for us. Why? So that we can come into the light. That, that, the only way you become a Christian is you come into the light, right? You stop making excuses. You stop rationalizing. You stop saying that you made mistakes. You stop saying that you need a life coach. And you say, I'm a sinner. And, and here's 10 specific ways I've sinned. And I can't save myself. And I need Jesus Christ to save me. I'm coming to light. Jesus Christ, interestingly enough, never called himself the salt of the earth. But we know that he was the saltiest person. In all of his relationships, nobody could party like Jesus in the appropriate ways. Nobody was so interesting and confusing to both religious people and the world. But Jesus Christ, even though he was completely useful, he said, I will be the one that will be trampled under other people's feet. And Jesus Christ took the judgment of the world. More importantly, he took the judgment of God in our place. And in response, he says, you are now the light of the world. You are now the salt of the earth. Don't lose it and don't hide it. Let's pray. Lord, that's our prayer. We don't want to lose it. We don't want to hide it. Lord, we thank you that the gospel creates this. It's the call to influence, Lord. It's the call to engage the world. It's the call to pray. It's the call to be different and distinct. It's the call to be interesting and fascinating. It's the call to tell the truth in a dark world. Lord, I pray we would as a church see the great joy of getting to be salt and light. We would, we would see the dangerous warnings of throwing baskets over our light or of losing our saltiness, Lord. To keep us together, Lord, we thank you that we are salt when we gather, we're salt when we spread out. We're salt when we go to our community groups, we're salt when we're here together, Lord. Help us to be lights, a city on a hill, and help us as we leave this place to wherever we go to be a lamp and, and to stand out in our homes and our houses and in our businesses. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.